0: Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. A lot has changed in the last couple of weeks. And we're dealing with a lot of different thoughts and emotions. There's a lot of fear and anxiety. Um, there's also a lot of numbness. Maybe you're at a point where you're trying to control things and pretend that nothing has really changed. But we all, over the last couple of weeks, has, have been reminded, because of COVID-19, that we are frail, and that we are not in control. And uh, this last week, personally, I was impacted just on Monday night, as my mother-in-law called, and, um, from central Alabama, and she was caring for, for coronavirus patients on her hospital floor. And um, that became kind of real for our family, as we heard all that she was doing, and having to put protective gowns and masks on, and And she is uh, over 60, and so we're concerned for her. And uh, I I think that as this continues, you also, if you don't know stories already, will hear stories of people and how we'll all be personally impacted by this. We have three moms in our church family who are getting ready to give birth any day um, between now and the next month or so, and they're all either doctors or married to doctors, which puts them at risk. Um, This is affecting each of us. I I talked with Um, A friend this last week who's out of town who used to be a part of our church and her husband is just in his early 60s and he has dementia and Alzheimer's and he was being moved from one facility to another. She was concerned he might not remember her the next time that she gets to visit him. This is impacting each of us in many different ways. and, And we each are asking, so where is God in all of this change and uncertainty? And I believe God is giving us an opportunity to examine our priorities and to examine our loves. One thing that's really interesting, if you look back at at America as a whole, it it seems as if, for the most part, the reality of life being fragile, that we've kind of lost that. Maybe since about World War II. Up until World War II, it was was just common. Everyone just knew that life was fragile. It was a part of life. But instead, our culture seems to have shifted. And we have become a very anxious system that is hyper-focused on the here and now. And, And technology has enabled us to do that through social media, through wearable technology, and we are hyper focused on what's going on right now. And it's caused this emotional reactivity within our hearts and within our souls. And the news and media don't help at all. For instance, last week, while. Our mayor is telling us that we're safer at home. He's passing a safer at home ordinance. We're hearing from the president that the economy might be opened back up by Easter. Just a couple of weeks from now. And so we're left with this kind of whiplash of, well, which is it? There's so many options and we we don't know where to turn. COVID-19 has slowed us down. And it's leveled the playing field, and we're all reminded of how fragile life truly is. And I believe that God is using this time in a strange way to give us the opportunity to reorder our lives. In the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today, we're studying a man named Nicodemus. And he comes to Jesus with a question about how to enter the kingdom of God. In essence, in today's language, he would be asking how to find happiness, or peace, or joy, or relationship with God. Which is most important. And Jesus shares a powerful truth with him. Jesus shares with him, in essence, that good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people Go to heaven. This text is one of the clearest pictures of the gospel. I've entitled it, Spiritual Seekers Wanted. Spiritual Seekers Wanted. And so, if you're someone who's watching this live stream today, and if you still have a lot of questions about what it means to follow Jesus, please know that Jesus wants your questions. And if you're a believer who's watching, know that there are men and women like Nicodemus who are in your life, and God desires to use you in order to make Himself known. This is a powerful story. Let's look at John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Hey, Andrew, will you do me a favor? Your iPad is low on battery, and I'm going to think about it the rest of the time unless I hand it to you and let you charge it. So I'm just going (laughs) to... I want us to be able to sing that last song. Thanks. Um... So, uh, Nicodemus, he shows us, first and foremost, we're going to look at two things. One, how to know God. And second, how to know that we can trust God. In, in these, this section of Scripture, we see how to know God. Nicodemus is the first of a cast of characters that John's going to introduce to us. Remember, John was Jesus' best friend. And in each of these characters' lives, Jesus doesn't encounter them. They encounter Jesus. And when they encounter Jesus, they are changed by His presence and His power. Because He is the Son of God. And that's what God wants to do in each of our lives. He welcomes seekers. God welcomes questions. Jesus liked hanging out with sinners. He actually liked hanging out with sinners more than He liked hanging out with the religious folks. Who, by the way, were also sinners. He liked hanging out with those who were the traditional sinners so much that he was called a drunkard and a glutton, uh, but he was always quick to rebuke the religious crowd. And that's who Nicodemus was. He was as religious as it gets, he was a Pharisee, the scriptures tell us. So he was a part of this brotherhood of about 6,000 men. They had taken a pledge and they had promised to obey the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Old Testament. But the Pharisees were different than the Sadducees. And this is important. I'm going to be nerdy for just like two minutes. And then I'm going to explain why. The Sadducees believed that every law was tied directly to the Torah. That every law was tied. That they could chapter and verse it from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy. And so... They believed that everything was exactly as the Scriptures wrote it out to be. However, the Pharisees believed in the law and a progressive oral tradition. So they extracted from the law an infinite number of regulations. And these regulations would then govern every conceivable situation in life. So much so that it became humorous. So in essence, the Pharisees had taken what were great principles from the Old Testament and they had written an infinite list of rules and regulations that govern life. And this is how how silly it became. I'll give you a quick example. We all know the Ten Commandments. And we all know this, this idea of the Sabbath. And so in the Ten Commandments, God gave Moses this Law, it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and on that day no work must be done by man, servant, or animals. That's pretty clear. Rest. You rest, your animals rest, your servants rest, everyone rest. Well, the Pharisees said that's not clear enough. And so they spent hour after hour, generation after generation, defining Sabbath work. They wrote 24 chapters of material that defined work. And so to tie a knot on the Sabbath was work. But then they had to define what's a knot. And so if you were a sailor, for instance, or maybe you were a camel driver, and you tied a knot, that was considered a permanent knot. Because anything that was tied for 24 hours to a week was considered a permanent knot. But if you're a woman and you tied knots in your girdle or in your cap or your sandals, well, that was considered permanent. A non-permanent knot. And so you could tie that knot on the Sabbath. And so a man who wants water can't tie a rope to a bucket, so he ties a girdle to a bucket and he lowers it down so he can get water. Do you see how ridiculous the laws had become? And that's, that is what the Pharisees' religion was all about. This intricate, detailed set of rules and regulations that they had come to follow. To be a Pharisee literally meant one who was separated. And they had separated from ordinary life in order to keep detailed rules. You may know some people who claim to be followers of Jesus who this sounds a lot like their lives. They had separated from ordinary life and all of their life had become about rule keeping. But... Nicodemus wasn't just a Pharisee, he was also a member of the Jewish ruling council, which meant that he was one of 70 men who were part of kind of like the Jewish Supreme Court. And they reported to the Roman government, and then they reported uh, not just to the Roman government, but also from Rome back to Israel. And so their job was extremely important. They were there to, to keep everyone at peace, and they were rewarded very well probably were paid a lot of money for this. Now, all of this is such important background. I know I'm spending a lot of time in it because you have to understand that Nicodemus is the best of the best. Nicodemus is like the Pope of his day and time. I mean, he was as religious as it came. But he wasn't just a Pharisee. He was also a legitimate seeker. We can't judge that by this passage alone. He comes to Jesus at night... Now, what does that mean? In John's writing, whenever we see darkness, it's a sign of moral and spiritual darkness. But I want to give you a quick spoiler alert. We know a little bit about Nicodemus' story if we fast forward and we read through. Because in John chapter 7, we see Nicodemus actually... So, if you don't want to know what happens to Nicodemus, you may want to to mute the TV for just a minute. But in in John chapter 7, Nicodemus actually stands up for Jesus with the ruling council. He shows that he's a believer. And then in John chapter 19, he's there. He helps to bury Jesus. In fact, he he brings 75 pounds of perfume that, that would be used at Jesus' burial. And so we know that Nicodemus becomes a follower of Jesus. But he's not there yet. He still has a lot of questions. He calls Jesus Rabbi. He recognizes something special about Jesus He's impressed with Jesus. Look at verse 2 in which he, he comes to Jesus by night and he says, We know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Unless God is with him. He's curious. He asks questions. He's probably like the majority of Americans today. He views Jesus as a good man. He's a major influencer in history, someone to look up to, maybe even someone to model life after. But the only way to God, Nicodemus isn't there yet. One thing that made Jesus very interesting, even unique, is that sometimes Jesus would speak with very veiled language? We'll, we'll see this because He always knew what was in a man or a woman's heart as He spoke to them. So sometimes He would use veiled language, but other times He would speak very directly. He would use exclusive claims. He would likely be judged intolerant in our society today because He made these exclusive claims about truth because He was God. And that's exactly what we see in verse 3. Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter. It's as if he anticipates Nick's question and informs him how he can enter the kingdom of God by being born again. In other words, Jesus is saying that you can't enter God's kingdom as you are. Your religion isn't good enough. You can never keep enough laws or perform enough good deeds. Jesus is saying for Nicodemus to enter heaven, something has to take place that's so radical in his life that it can only come through the Spirit of God. It will be so radical, it's as if Nicodemus is being born again or being born from above. It will be so new, it will feel like starting completely over. Now look back at verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and and be born? Clearly, Nicodemus doesn't get it. Jesus was referencing the fact that even someone of, of, of Nicodemus' character doesn't have the religious righteousness or the religious pedigree to enter the kingdom of God. It can be achieved It can't be achieved through the physical. It's a spiritual transformation. And What what I want you to hear from Nicodemus' life is, if Nicodemus doesn't have a chance of knowing God, then neither do you. Not on your own. Not by what you can do in performing. Not by being religious. Now, I've spent a lot of time in the first four verses of this text, and I'm going to spend most of our time in the last few verses... But in in the in-between, Jesus is going to help Nicodemus come to understand how to know God by giving him a spiritual example, a practical example, and an Old Testament example. Look at verse 5 as we see the spiritual example that that Jesus gives to Nicodemus. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Becoming a Christian is a supernatural act of God's generosity. We are much like Nicodemus. Just as he was dependent upon God for his second birth, we also were dependent upon God for our second birth, much as in the same way that we were dependent upon our parents for our first birth. We didn't have anything to do with it. And to be born of water and the Spirit is to receive the new heart and the sin-cleansing washing that God had promised for the age of the Messiah. This was a direct reference to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 35. I'm not going to, we don't have the time this morning to read back through it, but Nicodemus should have recognized this. Oh, Jesus is referring to Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through, 20, through 35, when he talks about a Messiah who would come, who would offer cleansing and a washing with water and the Spirit, and would put his spirit within them. And he speaks of resurrection in Ezekiel 37. This is a famous uh, passage and vision of a valley of dry bones that come to life and receive the Spirit of God, and they're reminded that Israel is going to come awake to the Messiah, and to the presence of Jesus. And so Jesus gives Nicodemus this spiritual example, but then Nicodemus still isn't catching on, so he goes on and gives him this practical example in verses 8-10. through Follow along in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? And Jesus is illustrating that we have about as much of a chance to save ourselves as we have of controlling the wind. It can't be done. We can't control the wind, we can't save ourselves. We know the wind blows, but it's impossible to control where it comes from or where it goes. And in the same way, entering the kingdom of God is impossible through our own efforts. And to hear this, Nicodemus would have been floored. I mean, he he was challenged to the core of his belief system. To him, interest in heaven was based on following the law, his pedigree, he was a descendant of Abraham, he had everything going for him. He was an in. His past meant that he had it made. All he needed to do was continue to appease God. Obey the rules and regulations. I mean, on top of this, he was a Pharisee. He was, had pledged to uphold every detail of the law. And Jesus is telling him, all of this isn't good enough. And what I want you to hear today is that Nicodemus is representative of many of us. His system was far more advanced than most of ours. He had at least taken hour upon hour and generation upon generation to write a system out that he tried to follow. His system couldn't save him, but I mean, give the guy a bit of credit, he had a plan in place, and it was a lot better than the plan that most people in our society have today. The majority of people in today's world are just like Nicodemus, just with a much simpler system. They don't have the oral law or the Talmud that's filled with all the religious rules and regulations that they try to follow. Instead, they have what would be described as a cosmic scale. A scale in which they would put their good deeds on one side and their bad deeds on the other. And they would hope that their good deeds might somehow outweigh their bad deeds. Now, most people in America today, if you polled them, so for instance... The census, we're all finding um, these opportunities on Facebook and social media and when we get on the internet. Have you, have you taken part in the census yet? Well, when you, when you uh, reach out to most people in America today, if you poll them, a few people believe in reincarnation, but the majority of people actually believe in a life after death. Which reincarnation is, in a sense, a life after death. It's just a life after death in which you, hopefully, if you are judged well enough, that you would eventually move into the everlasting endlessness of time, the, the eternal bliss. So there is still, even in re- reincarnation, a life after death. But most people, if you pulled them in America today, they would say that they believe in a typical, in some type of life after death. The majority of people in America actually believe believe that there is a place where you will spend eternity. Most are even comfortable calling it heaven. But here's the thing that gets really fuzzy. If there's a place called heaven, then how do you get there? And that's what Nicodemus was asking Jesus Look at verses 11 through 15 as Jesus gives Nicodemus not only a spiritual example and a practical example, but finally an Old Testament example. In verse 11, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's speaking about himself. That title, Son of Man, comes from the book of Daniel. It spoke of the Messiah who would come. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is ultimately saying that He is the gate to heaven. Jesus is ultimately saying that He is the way to heaven. And He references this well-known story for Nicodemus from, from Numbers chapter 21 when the people of Israel were grumbling in the wilderness after God had brought them out of Egypt. They were grumbling against the Lord. They were cursing the Lord. They distrusted God. And God brought serpents upon the people into their camp that bit them. Poisonous serpents that brought judgment upon them and they began to die. And when they cried out to the Lord, and Moses was instructed to create a bronze serpent. And when the people cried out to the Lord and said, Save us, Lord. And Moses cried out to the Lord. God said, Moses, make this bronze serpent and raise it up in the center of the camp. And if anyone is bit... They can simply look up at the serpent, and God will bring healing and salvation to them so that they will live and not die. Jesus is saying that salvation is radical that it can't be earned in our physical bodies, that that we can't be holy enough. In fact, he is saying that it's so radical that it's like being born all over again or being born from above because it is a work of the Spirit. And God accomplishes that work when we look up to Him in belief and surrender. Now, all that sounds really great but how can we possibly believe that this is true and that God can be trusted? God shows uh, Jesus shows Nicodemus how we can know God, but how can we trust God? Well, John tells us this in his summary in verses 16-21. through 21. Follow along as I read. I know in your Bible, if you have a red letter Bible, it's likely in red letters because... Those who have published this translation believe that this is likely Jesus' words. I believe that this is likely John's summary of Jesus' words. Either way, it's inspired by the Spirit. Listen to these words, verses 16-21, through as John shares with us how we can know that we can trust God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John 3.16 is probably one of the most well-known Scripture passages in all the Bible. Uh, If NFL football were, were on this afternoon, we would quite possibly see a poster that someone is holding up uh, behind the goalpost, And every time somebody kicks a field goal or an extra point, we see John 3.16. And uh, we become so familiar with this text that we hear it regularly. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. How can we trust God? How can we know that God is for us? One little word. Suffering. Suffering makes the gospel unique. Suffering gives us the ability to trust God because Jesus suffered unjustly for you and for me. Jesus suffered in our place. I think one of the reasons why our culture is so afraid right now is because we have no paradigm for suffering. We do everything in our power to push suffering away from us. Secularism is the spiritual belief of our day, secularism is just kind of the, the religion of our culture. It says, Live for now. There's really no miraculous. If you can't prove it scientifically, it must not be true. And so live for romance, or live for uh, your work, or live for a political agenda. Or live to make this earth somehow a little better when you leave it. And all of these things, the problem with them is that none of them are eternal all of these things that we would live for and that we would put our hope in, the problem with them is that they are all found in this world. And suffering attacks each of those because suffering attacks the ultimate meaning in life if we're finding our hope in this world. Now, oddly enough, all major religions up until the time of of our current day, up until the time of secularism, All major religions have accepted suffering as a natural part of life. You go back and you look at the the roots of Buddhism. If you go back and you look at um, reincarnation religions, if you look at the shame and honor culture, you'll see that each of these religions actually accepted suffering as a part of our world, as a part of the human condition. But listen, Christianity is unique in the sense that Jesus didn't simply or merely accept suffering. He embraced suffering. Because He he didn't just do it stoically. He did it personally as God. He experienced unjust suffering for you and for me. It wasn't deserved. And as a result, His followers grew The most during times of suffering. It was during times of plague and disease. In which others were looking out for themselves. That Christians actually understood that their hope was not in this world. That Jesus' resurrection had given them a better story. Had given them the true story. Hope in His restoration. That there will be a day in which He will return in which He will make all things as they once were. In which He will make all things not just better, but right. And that all suffering would be erased. And Christians were able to embrace suffering in a way that was unbelievable to others. Because their hope was not found in this world. But that their hope was found in the suffering servant Jesus Christ. I'll give you a quick example of that and we'll end. Martin Luther in 1527 had suffered so much in his life. And it was at this point that he had suffered under sickness himself. He had been with fever for over a week. He had written and said that he experienced what had felt like hell itself as if God had left him. Through doctor's aid he was able to recover. And it wasn't long after that that the black plague came. And during that time that he would open his home while his wife was pregnant, his son would be born, they would welcome uh, people who were dying of the black plague into their home, and that they would see friends and loved ones that they cared for die in front of their eyes. And it was during this time period in his life in which Luther would write, out of the 36 hymns that we have, that he would write these words... Entitled, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, from Psalm 46. Listen to these words. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper He amid the flood, of mortal ills prevailing. Our, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work His woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not His equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He. What Sabbath is His name from age to age the same, and He must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure, one little word shall fail Him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gift are ours through Him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. How do you write those type of powerful words? Your hope is not found in this world. Your hope is found in someone who is greater than this world. Suffering gives you a chance to examine your priorities now. And by examining your priorities now, suffering gives us a chance to examine not just our priorities, but our loves. Three things I would suggest for Christians as we face suffering. These are not original to me. Tim Keller shared these just a couple of weeks ago. I want to share them with you. One, if you're a follower of Jesus, weep, but trust. Weep, but trust. Trust. As Andrew said earlier, we lament. We look at things not through you know rose-colored glasses, but as they are. These are hard times. The Psalms teach us how to lament. 70% of the Psalms are lament. And so we weep, but we trust. Weeping enables us to trust. To move from pain in order to see God for who He is and to find our hope and joy in Him. But secondly, pray but think. Pray but think. Job spent... So many chapters in his book, Questioning God. And at the end, God says to Job, well done. And we say, how could, Job, how could God look to Job and say, well done. You've, you've asked all these questions. And Job came to a point of realizing, well, if I'm angry, there must be a God for me to be angry at. And so I'm going to ask him my questions. And God said to Job, your questions are welcome. Pray but think. And finally, reorder your loves and hope. Reorder your loves and hope. What are you putting your love in? What are your priorities? Hope in Jesus. Nicodemus, who had questioned Jesus, he paused, he considered, and ultimately he believed. And we are so much like Nicodemus. It's such a struggle for us to trust God and to believe that He alone can save us. We so often find ourselves moving toward the darkness instead of toward the light, but Jesus says, I am the gateway to heaven. Nicodemus questioned, he paused, he considered, and ultimately he believed and he came to understand a powerful truth that good people don't go to heaven, forgiven people go to heaven. We pray with me.